Hey everybody, it's John. Welcome back to The Hustle. Okay, this week, uh, man, this week is the just incomparable, most wonderful human being, Billy Bragg. I don't know, I wonder if you guys will have the same reaction to this that I did. It kind of, I haven't thought of things the same way since hearing from him. Uh, you would think in a time as tumultuous in our history as this, Billy Bragg would be the, go, the guy to go to leading the charge for anger and change and disruption and all these really fierce, hard, revolutionary ideas. But it's not that way. He has, he goes the other way. He's all about empathy. And I learned that in here. And it's changed my way, my the way I see the world. It's changed the way I'm approaching life in this day and age. This is such an inspiring conversation. Who better to have that kind of conversation with than Billy Bragg. So if you don't know, last year he put out a new album called The Million Things That Never Happened. It's more of like a, you know, a COVID album. And it takes on some really interesting ideas and kind of twists them around. Like I said, he's he seems to be in sort of, a, it's not a positive mind frame, but what else can you do? And anyway, I just love the man. Tonight, uh, he is kicking off a North American tour. Again, sadly, he's not coming anywhere near me. I would love to see him in concert. I never have. But if you want to see Billy Bragg, then check the website. The link's right here. And get in there because I would. I want to hear all about it if you do. I love him. Another interesting thing about this conversation is we go pretty deep on those Mermaid Avenue albums that he made with Wilco. How were they even chosen? How did they get? How were those songs made? Who played on them? How, what kind of relationship was built then? I didn't know anything about that stuff, and I really thought it was interesting because in some circles, those are the biggest things he's ever done, which is kind of shocking, honestly, but that's the way it worked. We also talk about it working with Johnny Marr, um, sort of the Smith's legacy at this point with Morrissey being problematic, and a bunch of other topics. He is a beautiful, beautiful man, and I am so grateful that we had this wonderful conversation. He called me from his home in Dorset, England. I'm glad you could do it at Sean Norris, because my next couple of days, I'm a bit busy in the uh, evening, so I, I thought if it. we could nail this, um, I'm off to Germany to do a long, long delayed series of talks about my last book, so I should have done them in 2020, and it's been oh. rebooked and... and well. Everything is like that now, right? I mean, this, everything. This one, got this one actually got cancelled when I got COVID. <laughs> when did I you think, get COVID? Oh, May, March, March, May, May, May. Of this Talking year? At a book fair. Yeah, yeah, book fair. I got the Omicron variant. Yeah. Talking at a book fair in Cambridge, which was great. Uh -huh. But uh, then I was doing this follow-up German thing, and I'm like, oh, oh just a positive. So <laughs> that didn't happen. It happens. At least it's less lethal. You know, my dad died yeah. of it uh, almost two oh, years I'm, ago now. I'm so sorry, John, it, to hear that. It, I mean, we're one of, you know, we're one of those statistics, one of millions. Yeah. 
And but thankfully, with vaccinations and everything, you might still get it, but you're less likely to die, which is the point. So anyway, yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, here's my question: a uh, little bit of a lead up. So I know a couple of guys, and they host a radio show, and they're both a couple of just Trump lovers. It's disgusting, and I heard them, but they're also huge Billy Bragg fans. And I heard them mention on their radio show a while back, I love Billy Bragg, but I hate his politics. And when I think of people whose (laughs) music and politics are as tightly woven as yours, there's not many. And I just think, how can that be? That's like saying, I like, I love Julia Child, but I hate when she cooks. And it's the whole point of your being. And I wonder, do you get that a lot? You probably no, do. I think it's more like saying I love Julia Child's dinners, but I can't stand her desserts. Ah, uh, maybe because you're still kind of you're still kind of getting the music. Mm-hmm. You're still getting the main thing that I do, which is write songs, and that's obviously touching them in some way. Yeah, but that that aspect of what I do doesn't chime in with their worldview, and that's fine by me. I'll be perfectly honest with you, John. That's not something that I worry about. You can choose your friends, but you can't choose your fans. Yeah, you know. Yeah. I once had a, a very strange early morning uh, run-in on a TV program, which was far too early for me to be there. And I really wasn't awake much. I was going to play a song there. Uh, it was a, it's a current affairs program. And the croissant and coffee was just dreadful. Anyway, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, which, who would be the Secretary of the Treasury, mm-hmm. who was a Labour guy, and I'd done a lot of work with Labour, he came in. I kind of knew him from the 80s. And he said, oh, hello, Billy. Are you still are you still performing? And I said to him, Yeah. His name was Alistair Don. I said, Yeah, Alistair, are you still Chancellor of the Exchequer? And he kind of looked at me. Anyway, that was weird. And the next <laughs> thing, the other door opens, and the opposition uh, chancellor, the shadow, what we call the shadow chancellor. So that will be the guy who talks about these issues, but he's a conservative. He comes in, a guy named George Osborne. He comes in. He's like Billy Bragg. Oh, I was twenty-one years when I wrote this song. Like he's my greatest fan. And I'm like, Oh, this is. You know, I haven't even had a coffee yet, and this is a nightmare <laughs> already. So, so you get, you know, you can never yeah. tell who it is who's going to be the guy or the girl who, who yeah. says, "Oh yeah, I love, I love his song- songwriting." You know, but I disagree. You know, people who like my, even people who like my politics, disagree with me on some issues. Mm-hmm. Sure. So that's you know that's the the nature of the thing. I'm not wishing to be loved by everybody. I'm putting my perspective out there. If it connects with you. I'm really happy about that. If it don't, well, it's another song about something else. See if that connects with you. you That's true. That's true. It just feels like you're so devoted to, you know, enlightenment and causes and expanding. No, it's worse than that, John. It's worse than that, John. I'm devoted to empathy. Yes. And and Trump has Trump has none of that. You know, it's not just me. I mean, you know, I I've felt for a long time that the currency of music is empathy. Whatever music it is, whoever's making music, they're trying to connect with the greater good of the yes. world. You know, they're trying yes. to make the listener feel they're not alone, yeah. to let the listener draw something from the song. It might be something that lifts them up. It might be something that actually helps them to face their melancholy or whatever. You know, yeah. people use music for different things, and how lucky we are that we're able to alter our emotions without having to take chemicals. True. How fortunate we are that we can do that, those of us who love music. But I've, I feel that empathy is the the key aspect of it. And over the years... I've started to make that more explicit because I think we live at a time when there's like a war on empathy mm-hmm. where anyone who shows any any hint of compassion for people outside their own perceived group or mm-hmm. gender 
or politics is immediately attacked as virtue signaling or woke is the current yep. phrase, you know. Yep. Um, so I, you know, I try to make sure that one, my songs have that aspect of it, and two, that I do my utmost to avoid cynicism, to try and actually I think of cynicism as my enemy. Because I think cynicism is the real uh is a real problem if you want to make the world a better place. If you're if totally you're giving to cynicism, you know, you have to fight it. So I'm trying to lift my audience up, recharge their activism, yeah. make them feel like they're not alone. And when I see someone like Trump who has absolutely no empathy whatsoever, he seems to have no yeah. um sort of sense of understanding of how other people feel yeah. i find that hard and your your pals are clearly not like that because although they support trump they like my love songs so yeah. there must be something in my love songs that they're getting and i you know unless we discuss what songs it was that we, yeah. we can't really get into that it yeah. might be you know it might be a song like tank park salute which i wrote about the death of my father it might be that that touched them uh, in a way that they can't deny yeah so they obviously they have some empathy yeah. But Trump and many of those around him and some of his supporters as well, I think they've they've lost that connection to the what we might refer to as the greater good. Yes. And yes. you kind of saw it during the pandemic. You know, these would be yeah. the people who think they're inconvenienced having to wear a mask. They don't yep. understand how it's, you know, it's part of 100%. Respo responsibility, you know. Yeah. They're the, the libertarians who think libertarianism means you don't have to do anything anybody tells you. They don't understand that. To live in that world where you're completely free, you have to work much, much, much harder than, you know, there's no convenience in that world. There's no shortcuts in that world. If you really yeah. want to live like that, it's it's 24-7 harsh because it's it's the real frontier life. It's really out there in the woods, no shops, no road, no water, no nothing. Mm -hmm. That's that's the real freedom. That's true. But they're not talking about that. They're they're no. they're just trying to avoid responsibility. I have respect for those people who who put themselves in a position where they really are on their own. There's a great program. It's an American program, uh, but it may be on a channel that you've never seen, but it's on. It's, I often find it around midnight when I'm flicking through the channels. And what it's called something like, I don't know, rough and tough Alaska. It's about these. Oh yeah. Who, I've heard of this show. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, you know, one, one woman lives in a, she kind of lives in a gasoline dump where planes come and get the gasoline, but she's on her own. And just to fix everything. Another guy's out trapping in the wood. Another guy's with his family and they're hunting seals. I mean, it's compelling viewing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But those people work so hard. You could say they're free. No yeah. one's breathing down their neck. No one's telling them what to do. But by God, they work hard. They work hard. And and I think sure do. And it's at a time when freedom seems to mean the right to say whatever you want to say to whoever you want to say it, whenever you want to say it, with no comeback. That's it. That's that's not freedom. That's no, Donald Trump's Twitter feed, for Christ's sake. You know what I'm saying? We've, yes. we've seen what that is. So I have respect for those people who do want to go out and live that free life and, you know, live what we used to refer to as hand to mouth. What, yes. You know, what, I mean, what things they must see, mm -hmm. what experiences they must have beyond our, you know, mm -hmm. the kind of lives that you and I live, going to the supermarket to buy our food and driving around in our cars and listening to the right. radio those people who are really out there yeah i have i have a great deal of respect for that so that's I just so that program just does me every night i'm watching these 
I got to watch this. I've heard of it. I got to see this. So everything you're saying, Billy, is really interesting because when I listen to the new album, Million Things That Never Happened, there are a couple of songs on there that's, that uh, that really strike out to me. First and foremost, when I th- and everything you're saying is already answering some of my questions because when I think of an activist like you and it's 2021 and a new Billy Bragg album's coming out, I'm thinking, yes, here comes the spokesman for this generation. He's going to he's going to define and explain our anger and frustration. And the album is the opposite. It's yeah. much more of in fact um reflections on the mirth of creativity i have to use, i have to look at it to make sure i get all the words right woke up this morning there was something dawning on me something i'd never seen someone i'd never been came down for coffee and i could not find where i'd left my troubled mind opened the windows and the day blew in it was fresh and new and it caressed my skin Reeling, it was such a feeling that it made me smile for the first time in a long while. But don't ask me how, I just don't know. Don't ask me why, I got nothing to do but When I hit the street, felt light on my feet Like if I tried, I just might fly And every single face I see had a smile for me Like I was royalty or something It's, a, it's just saying, I, I can't explain it. I'm happy. I feel good. The sun is... Have a joy. Yeah. Yes. And yeah. That, sh- that is shocking to me that that's where you... And I wonder, is that... Are we just... Is it acceptance? Is it overcoming the the obstacles that we're all facing it, where where does this come from bill well it comes from the pandemic yeah because what happened is um, uh, we, when we got to the second lockdown here which would have been i suppose around christmas of 2020 hmm. the first lockdown i kind of went into it like everybody else i'll do some shows online i'll you know connect with that i'll you know that was going nowhere and the sound quality was shit <laughs> so and um, you know playing in your living room yes. into your phone right with no, you know, with no idea of if even you're hooked up to the internet. It's like it's the antithesis of my idea of doing a gig. But anyway, let's let's the second the second lockdown kind of knocked me sideways a bit. And I think, you know, the idea of making the record was my way of sort of getting focused and connecting. So I was aware that I was going to write a lockdown record, but it can't be about the lockdown. It's got to be kind of coming at it at a slightly different angle that gives people the opportunity to bring their own experiences into it so a song like um should have seen it coming i should have seen it coming but i didn't have the time far too busy grafting to pick up on the signs it came up through the static and hit me from behind I should have seen it coming, but I didn't have the time. Should have seen it coming, but I looked the other way. I didn't need the trouble. 
You know, it could have been, it could be about a health issue. Could it be something that happened to you at work? Could have been a bus hit, you know, whatever. You know, but really, it's coming out of that universal space. But having been aware, I thought I've got to. Ha- there must be some joy in it. There must be some uplifting things in it. What's the thing that gives me the most joy? The thing that gives me the most joy is those days when the universe aligns for me, and out of that comes a song. And I don't know how that happens. I don't know why it happens some days, why it doesn't. It's I'm not someone who can just. You know, if I want to have to write a song, I'm like, I mean, you know, writing, writing the album, right. starting from literally blank paper. Normally, I don't do that. Normally, I'm out. I intended to be out on the road in 2020 trying out songs in sound checks, which is what I do. And I kind of, you know, sort of woodshed a load of ideas and then come home and work through those. I sat down with uh, a piece of paper and actually I wrote a load of titles down, mm. ideas for song titles, among which was The Million Things That Never Happened. And lots of other daft ones, but I can't remember what it's called now. Is it the mirth of uh, the mirth? Yeah, the mirth of reflections creativity. on the mirth of creativity. Yeah, mirth of creativity. Thank you for pulling me in there. I always have to remember um, it's a it's a big one. Reflections, yeah, because it's it's about the joy of of you know, in the morning when you wake up, the song isn't there, and when you go to bed at night, it is. And you've you've it's come from somewhere that you don't know where it comes from, but it's manifest itself to you. And it can be something just as I went for a walk into the park, the birds were singing, I was whistling, traffic lights were going my way. That's what that's what it feels like. It feels like you're in that situation. It feels for me anyway. The 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 creativity, the burst of creativity feels like everything just lines up. The universe, just for a moment, lines up and comes into focus long enough for you to get your perspective on it and bang, get it write down what it's what you want to write about. Sometimes it's takes a long time you get little fragments sometimes very rare times the whole thing comes all in one go like that yes. and i mean that's really like catching a wave that's really amazing and that's what the song is about that kind of that kind of day where you just you know you just happen to be out there paddling all of a sudden it yeah. wave lifts you up and away you go and i thought that i must have those songs in there because i don't want it to be you know we're living in very hard times yeah. at the moment on a number of levels on a number of levels and and perhaps the most important of those levels is uh, p- people's mental health. So I have to be aware of what I'm putting in. I have to put yes. something in. You know, it's what I want to put good days and bad days in. Yeah. To give people a bit of you know yes. up and down on it. So I'm much more aware of that more than I was when I was younger, perhaps. Um, that so makes yeah, sense. I, don't, I don't think I don't I don't think a ranting album would have worked really. Um, that um, yeah. that makes sense. The title track too. You were just talking about kind of where you were coming from. Two lovers meet in the park. Friends bond over drinks after dark. Walk on a beach so far out of reach and a million things that never happened at all last christmas at the old place a convivial chat face to face the expectant delight Saturday night and a million things 
It's a list of really great things in that could happen in one's life. And I thought, is the subtext here that because of lockdown, these are things that didn't happen, that weren't able to happen? Is that the approach for that song? It is. It is. I think, you know, when we look back on this, our children, it, it will be such a monumental event. It will be like, the you know, a mixture between the Cuban Missile Crisis and the Second World War, mm-hmm. you know. And our grandchildren, our grandchildren won't say to us, what did you do in the pandemic, Grandpa? I say, what didn't you do? Yeah. What were you prevented from doing? And for some of us, it'll be pretty trivial things. I didn't go up the pub with my mates. I didn't get to do that Australian tour. You know, things that you could do later. For some people, it will be the deepest, most personal experiences it's possible to have, like being present at the birth of a child yeah. or being able to comfort someone as they're dying, um, not being able to go to a funeral or something like that. Those, you know... Those things don't come around again, and yeah. you have to steal yourself and, you know, thinking and, and live with yourself on account of those things. So I was trying to, with that song, it was the last song I wrote for the album, actually. Mm-hmm. I, I sat down with the producers and said, look, you got to play me everything. I need to hear the whole thing in context, mm-hmm. see if there's anything missing. And in the end, what was missing was something that really did actually put the finger right on the pandemic. Bonk. Yeah. Yep. And say this is this is a a pain that yep. we're all going to feel because it's a weird thing, you know. Normally, when you write a song, you've got something you're interested in, and you're trying to draw the listener's attention. Check this out, because you know, if you're looking for justification for making any kind of art, mm-hmm. to do something that no one else is doing, offer a perspective that no one else is offering. That's probably the best justification, mm-hmm. you know, to start with whatever creativity you're doing. But when the experience you're trying to write about is universal to everybody on the planet, yeah. you, the way you approach it has got to be a bit more considered. In yeah. some way, you've got more leeway yeah. because you can you can chime in with those events yes. without, you know, underscoring it. You yeah. can just, you know. I mean, I've had uh, experiences on, on tour when I did a – I managed to do a six-week UK tour for the album in between the end of Delta and the beginning of Omicron. It was complete fluke that I managed to do it and we didn't catch anything. We didn't have to close the tour down. But people were coming up to me afterwards, particularly talking about that song and saying, you know, I hadn't really, you know, lost a a loved one or I wasn't able to be there or, you know, I hadn't really come to terms with that, Bill. But, you know, you played that song tonight and all of a sudden Mm -hmm. it caught me. And people say, you know, it was sort of, it moved me to tears. And I'm like, well, good, because that's the empathy I've been talking about. That's That's exactly what I want. It's easy to make someone cry by hurting them, but to make someone cry by making them feel some deep emotions, that's a really powerful skill. People pay a lot of money to go and see movies that do that to them. So to be able to have a song that that can connect connect with people, for me, it's a real – uh, responsibility to be able to yeah. get to that place, um, and I and I think they're the sort of songs I'm best at. I can yeah, I can write political yeah. songs. I can always write daft love songs, but those songs that uh, you know, a song called "I Keep Faith" that I play.
And on, on paper, it could be a song about a relationship. But when I pitch it to the audience about it being about my faith in their ability to change the world and explain to them that, you know, singer-songwriters can't do that, only the audience can do that, yeah. it, it, it packs a pretty big emotional punch at the end of the night. So I'm aware of that, and I'm aware that people need that sense of of feeling something and coming away with something. So it's not, you know the um voice of our generation telling us how it is mm -hmm. it's more like a an old friend putting her arm around you and saying you know these have been yes. these have been tough times haven't they not saying any more than that really yeah. just reflecting yeah. on the fact that we are you know we are facing tough times but we're 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 in this together we're all in it together i understand you so much better now than i thought i did i mean oh, i I've, I've always known there has always been that empathetic angle or spirit to a lot of your music but you just naturally think of somebody who writes protest songs and is an activist and politically active like you as as it coming from a the root of it all being some sort of anger or frustration and i'm sure that's true but you have well, chosen to yeah. overcome those is feelings it, with the it, empathy is it no tony is, it, is you know what is socialism if it's not about empathy you're right. What is socialism if it's not about the common good? You're right. You know, yeah. That what, so, the, the way I understood, you could you could argue it's about economic theory if you want to, but no, you know, a socialism that isn't ultimately to me a form of organised compassion isn't worthy of the name. Beautiful. You know. So, um, and I've come to understand it. I mean, I didn't realise this in the 1980s when I was writing Power in the Union, when yeah. I was involved in the miners' strike, when I was learning about socialism. Yeah, but through my through my experience over time, um, I've come to have a less ideological perspective on things and try to try to get to the root. I mean, you know, the the book I'm talking about uh, in Germany next week is a book I wrote called "The Three Dimensions of Freedom" that argues that in order to be free, we require liberty, the right to express your opinion, equality, your willingness to respect other people's right to express their opinion, but fundamentally, accountability, mm -hmm. and that we're lacking in that both yeah. in uh, Donald Trump and in Boris Johnson and in a yeah. lot of other authoritarian leaders around the world. Yeah. And again, you know, that's not a huge leap for me from what I was talking about in the 80s. Sure. That was a, you know, again, socialism is about holding capitalism to account. Yeah. And that that accountability now, we have to bring that into green politics as well. So yeah. my politics haven't changed, but the way I've articulated them has that's changed. Right. And of course I have. Thatcher's yeah. dead. The Berlin yeah. Wall's come down. You know, I'm someone's dad. It's yeah. a different bloody world, mate. Yeah, and and for me to still be writing songs in that ideological sense uh -huh. uh, wouldn't make sense today. You know, when people say to me um, there aren't any political songwriters, they mean there aren't any ideological songwriters. Mm. There aren't people writing songs like that. Well, there are a few. I mean, there's you know, there's kind of people writing some union songs and, yes. and people making the the you know Tom Morello and people like that. Are doing sure. writing great stuff, but the young songwriters are coming through, are working on a much more humanitarian level, mm -hmm. and that's because they haven't been through the minor strike. They haven't got the Vietnam War to yeah. to charge them up. It's, they're getting their information in different ways. You can't expect it to just repeat. It doesn't. Yeah. Situations like that don't repeat. I mean, we're about to go into a time in the UK here of heightened uh, labour union activity, mm -hmm. but but that's 
that happened in the 1970s and 80s then, but in the 70s and 80s, inflation was rising and wages were rising too. Yeah. Now, inflation is rising, wages are dropping or stagnating. This is a totally different ballgame. And the ramifications are going to be huge, I think, in this country. They're going to be absolutely huge when people have to heat the, you know, make a choice in the winter whether to heat their house or feed their kids. It's going right. to be it's going to kick off, you know? It is, yeah. It's going to kick I mean, off. You probably saw this. There's There are certain cities in the southern United States that don't have water. They just yeah. they blew it. Yeah. They're out of water. Yeah. You can't buy yeah. it. You can't water your lawn. You can't nope. flush the toilet. No. Nope. Sorry, guys. We don't know what to do about it. And yeah. uh, so I just can't believe we're here. I can't believe that smarter p- heads aren't prevailing to – we have all the resources we need to solve, or at least try to solve. Address problems. to address to, to address, address the problem. Yes, yeah. And yet we, we do. Don't. We don't have the will, though. We don't have the will. That's it. The will. I'm reminded of a song by Jackson Brown, who's one of my favorite songwriters. Uh, uh, before the deluge, I don't know if you're familiar with it. But yes, yeah. I do. You know where he talks about the failure of humanity to understand nature is bigger than anything that we can conceive. Um, and over the years, you know, we've harnessed nature and we've benefited from it. But there have been times when it's turned on us. You know, the last ice age nearly wiped us out. And it, and that time may come again and we may have to, you know, stop what we're doing and focus on that. But I'm, I am, I have to say I'm encouraged by the way the majority of people responded during the pandemic. They, they recognised that in times of crisis, you may have to do things that you don't want to do or you wouldn't choose to do in order to address the problem you know what we refer to in uh i think in the us as well is the common good they recognize the value mm-hmm. of acting in the common good and those people who um made a fuss about having to wear a mask they they just didn't get it they really yeah. didn't get it and they're loud and they're annoying but the majority of people i think certainly in my country uh recognize that we do have to do that sometimes for instance for months after the mask mandate ended in my country, the majority of people in our local supermarket were still masked up. The staff were, I certainly was, and the majority of people were to protect myself, yeah, but also to, you know, act responsibly. And that encourages me because I think that concept of the common good is we're really going to need that when it comes to tackling the climate crisis Absolutely. that's coming. So Absolutely. I'm encouraged by um the the response you know i'm not although obviously there are a lot of uh what should we say um what's a what's a uh map anti-mandate people oh the, the best um, way to call them well, it's a bit unfair it's a bit unfair yeah. to call them libertarians because libertarianism does have a, a, a i'm a trying to think of a polite polite word i don't know no it's the, they're uh, just yeah they're just in the way I don't know how yeah, selfish bastards, maybe. That's it, basically, yeah. yeah. That's it. I always wonder, you know, whenever people talk about, you know, earnest singer-songwriters or killjoy feminists, mm-hmm. they never say selfish capitalists <laughs> or, you know, they get, they ne- they never put a, you know, no. sort of like, you know, uh, no. dumb-ass libertarians. They never yeah. put a, a term, a pejorative term on the front of that. It's always no, the other way around, isn't it? It's always the Which ones is- who are fighting. Yeah, it's always the other guys, the little, the underdogs that are trying to make yeah, things yeah. better. So true. Okay, so let's talk about fun stuff for a minute. I am curious. Oh. Now, you sort of touched on this a minute ago. I've always been curious what, knowing your background and interest in things like poetry, when you go sit down to write songs like you did over the lockdown, 
maybe it comes in all different forms, but does it come, do you, is that writing of song titles a, a real provocation for you? Or is it, do you sit and do you get so angry or so empathetic about a certain issue and you think I got to put words to this? Is it a, a harmony or a melody floating around your head? Where do these things usually come from for you? Well, the, the, um, the writing down the list of song titles was the first ice pick in the wall of the, of the mountain I was going to climb. Right, right. <laughs> what have I got? Sit down with a guitar, play some uh-huh. songs, find something you like. Yeah. Sometimes, as I say, sometimes it, you just have a moment. It's, it didn't make it onto the album, but when the pan, uh, the lockdown was called in the UK, it was literally the week before Mother's Day. And I, I mean, my mum's passed away now. She passed away 12 years ago. But um, I was suddenly struck by the number of people who would be in an incredible quandary about going to see their mum because they might possibly, you know, infect their mum or what. It seemed to me to be a real – so I wrote a little song about it. It can't be there today and just recorded it and put it out on the internet. And it, and it connected with a lot of people. So that song – came from a moment of realisation. And so with that moment of realisation, I'm, I'm trying to find the chords to say it on a, on a guitar, messing around with chords, and a hook line. Mm-hmm. And kind of once I got the hook line, I then re- reverse engineer from there to the points I want to make and try and make them with a, you know, with with as much uh, sensitivity as I can, not to, you know, I don't want to uh, sort of, sentiment sentimentality too much sentimentality but a lot of sentiment right. if you know what i mean yeah. you know yeah. and connecting that way so that yeah. you know that's that's a one where it's literally a bit of boom bit of bam mm-hmm. but other ones sometimes um i i had uh a tune which was originally the tune for uh the track that's on the album that's called um the buck doesn't stop anymore I had that tune, and I realised actually it needed a, it needed a different tune. It needed to be more of a gospel song. Mm. So I wrote a new tune for it, but I still had these chords. And I didn't know what to do with these chords, and and I had the title, "The Million Things That Never Happened," mm. and it, uh, right at the end of the sessions, I was messing around with those chords, and I realised that the million things that never happened fit the chords. Mm-hmm. That that phrase you could say that phrase at the end of the line. It could be a tagline. So yeah. there again, that put me. I was like, okay, I know where I am now, and now I've got these parameters. It's like it's like you get a um, a map, not a uh, Google map, not a Google map, not a Google map that you could just put in the thing and finds, but a map where you're looking at it and you're thinking, okay. Do I know where am I on this map? Look around me. What can I see? Okay, there's supposed to be a church there. Can I see a church? Yeah. Okay, I must be here. How do I get over there? It's a bit like that. Yeah. Not where you just click, 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 and away it goes. I get it. But you're you're moving through a, a landscape of emotion, a landscape of uh, sonic landscape, and you're trying to draw everything along and draw people to the conclusion of the song to leave them with the sensibility that you want to leave them with, or the possibility, okay. or the perspective, or whatever it is you're trying to offer up. So let me ask you about a couple of my favorite songs of yours. One of them uh, is more, I'm, I'm more curious about the lyrics and one I'm more curious about the music. Levi Stubbs' Tears.
I think that I always thought that song tells such a, a, a detailed, beautiful story. But I maybe I'm just not very smart, Billy. Where do Levi Stubbs's tears fall into that story? Is there a story about Levi, Leo, Levi Stubbs's tears with the four tops and I'm missing it? What's the connection? There is a connection. There is, and it's okay. right there at the end when she uh, puts the four tops cassette back in the case. Yeah. This woman has had a pretty tough life, but she finds some empathy, some yeah. feeling in listening to the Four Tops, and particularly okay. to Levi Stubbs, whose voice has a cry in it that you can't really find in in many voices. You know, uh, I was driving back from the lockup today. I took some master tapes up there to, to put away, and uh, I had my iTunes on random, and Standing in the Shadows of Love came on, and he just ripped it up. He just ripped it up. Yeah. And that sort of emotion that he was able to bring to songs. Okay. Uh, I would argue that, the, you know, much as I love Smokey Robinson as a songwriter, I would argue that, that uh, Levi Stubbs was the great, greater singer. Yeah. That Him and David it's, me, it's me trying to, it's me trying to articulate what I just said to you about half an okay. hour ago when I didn't really consciously, hadn't really thought through how it worked, but okay. how the, the, um, I guess it's the redemptive power of soul music is what the song is about. Yeah. Okay. It's not so much about the character. It's yeah. about how do you write about the way music affects people? That's well, you have to have a, you have to have you have to have a person who's listening. So she has to go yes. through all that terrible thing I put her through. Mm -hmm. But in the end, her redemption comes in her mobile home from that cassette of yeah. Levi Stubbs okay. and the Four Tops, and that's that's what I'm trying to, you know. And the clanging guitars needs mm -hmm. the world is the world is falling apart. You know, mm -hmm. needs that edge to it. It can't just be a gentle soul song. It can't be a pretend Motown I get song. It. It needs That's to be I've something always... taught, something really, really taught, like she yes. is. Yes. You know, holding on to that steering wheel. But Levi Stubbs just yes. takes her to that place she needs to go to. That's what I've always thought, but I've never had Billy Bragg at my disposal to confirm. <laughs> so that's what... That's why that's why I wanted to bring it up. Now, that's what I'm I here think, for, John. That's, that's right. That's what I'm here for. So I think one of my favorite songs of yours, maybe my very favorite, is Cindy of a Thousand Lives.
And I love it because of the lush, beautiful production of that song, which I don't always think of when I think of Billy Bragg, but that was kind of where you were going, especially in the early 90s. Is Cindy a person? Tell me the story of Cindy. With, with regard to the um, the production, two uh-huh. words, Johnny Marr. Well, that's it. I just saw him in concert Ma. last night. He opened for the Killers. I hear, yes. I follow yeah. him on Twitter. I'm seeing he's doing great shows. He's yeah, he produced he produced uh, Sexuality on that album, and he did a few other tracks as well, and Cindy was one of the tracks he wanted to do, okay. so I doffed my cap to him. I thought yeah, so. Cindy of a Thousand Lives. There's a, a New York photographer called Cindy Sherman, and she's um, been working since the 1970s, and she's had loads and loads of photographs, usually of women in, in uh, different dramatic situations. And all of the photographs are self-portraits. She Initially, she kind of like was taking photos that might be um, look like the cards that cinemas used to put outside under the poster that were scenes from the film. I don't know if you're old enough yeah, to remember that. I, do, I know what you're talking about, yes. Yeah, yeah. So... You know, the, her, her early stuff was called Untitled Film Stills. Oh, and when I first came to America, I picked up a few of these and it didn't say anything. It just said Untitled Film Still. I was like, what the hell is this? And then she yeah. started to get rather grotesque in the pictures and you couldn't really – I mean, one of my favourite ones of her <clears throat> is a, a got like a – almost like a – it's like a pig's face, uh-huh. but like a about to eat an apple, like a child, like a – it's, it's hard to describe, but it's okay. absolutely fascinating. Huh. And that that uh, th- these images really drew me into, or tried to drew, draw me into, um, the darker side of America. One of the things I never really understood about America till I came there was how vast it was, and how so much of it is not urban. In my country, it's mostly urban. In Europe, it's mostly urban. But in America, there are these vast areas of desert, of mountain, of prairie. But most of all, for, for me, and this might be a European sensibility, the piney woods, mm-hmm. the darkness on the edge of town. Mm-hmm. And to for, for us in Europe, the woods is always a scary place. You never want to go in the woods on your own. There's things in the woods that you don't want to. And the idea that the most United States, you know, you only have to look out the window as you take off from um, – New York, and yeah. you're going over New Jersey. You know, if you take off from uh, what's the airport out there? Um, Guardia. Uh, no, no. Um, oh, in uh, Jersey. Yeah, yeah, that one. It's, that's the one I fly into. Anyway, exactly. Uh, that one is you know you're not far from. I will think of it in a minute. You're not yeah. far taking off from there, and you're out over miles and miles and miles of woodland, upstate New York, those kind of places. And Cindy Sherman seemed to inhabit that America. You know, that okay. Blue Velvet America, as I mentioned in the song. So I'm trying to evoke, and the images that I refer to are inspired by images in her photographs. Mm-hmm. So it's a okay. song about a photographer, really. And I'm sorry to spoil it for you, John, but it's really no. just a song about a photographer. I love that. That's even cooler. And now the Thousand Lives thing, now I understand why there's a Thousand Lives, because there's probably thousands of pictures. Yeah. Um, check out. Check her out online. It's incredible stuff. You might be familiar with her. You might I think be I know who she is. This sounds really yeah. familiar, and I don't think I've made the yeah. connection before. Yeah. So yeah. a couple of months ago, I had Nick Durden on here who wrote this book that you are did, in, yeah. Exit Stage Left. Um, there, something that First of all, there's two things I want to mention. Number one, you have one of my favorite quotes in the book 
which is that music was our social media back then. Yeah. And that is so true. And um, that was the way we sort of connected with each other and found our tribe and, and our people and spoke our truth or whatever. And then yeah. the other thing that I thought was interesting, you just mentioned sexuality. I didn't realize that when you had that song, according to the book, when you had sexuality, you felt like this is a great pop song for the radio. I need to build an album around it. That's going to make the top 40. Is that true? It is. Yeah, it is. Okay. I mean, the thing is when Johnny produced that, mm -hmm. uh, me and my regular producer, Grant Showbiz, we were like flipping neck. Now we've got to make an album that, that this doesn't, sound yeah. like it's that doesn't fit we've got to yeah. really raise our game but it was good for me it was about that time and it yeah. did at the end of um at the end of that whole campaign i'd kind of found myself kind of like reinvigorated as a as a mm -hmm. a pop star mm -hmm. but to tell you the truth that was a bit of a cul-de-sac for me it was like i can't do that again i've got nowhere to go up there yeah i'm kind of that's my you know that's my limit there in those terms. I don't really want to play that game. Mm -hmm. And uh, fortunately, life intervened. And uh, in between Don't Try This at Home and William Bloke, I became someone's dad. Yeah. yeah. And that's sort of changed the, the parameters and everything for me, which was great because I needed a bit of that because I'd, I'd kind of done my – it's my theory that if you're very fortunate, you, you get about 10 years when the public are interested in what you're doing you know, the general public. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then if you're very, very fortunate after that, there's still enough people interested in you to allow you to carry on earning a living. And I've been yeah. very privileged in both those terms, you know. Yeah. Uh, my cycle in the as a someone the press were interested in follows that arc to sexuality. And after that, I'm kind of out on my own. I'm cool with that. I don't yeah. miss it. I don't wish to go back there. Again, a completely different world, a world in which there were four weekly UK music papers. True. It's completely yeah. different now, and I don't, you know, I'm I'm happy going out and playing uh, in theatres. I have a great fun in summer at festivals, you know, Good. playing and on Good. and big tents and dark stages. I have, yeah. you know, uh, it's a great way to, um, to earn a living. How lucky am I? I earn a living doing what I like doing. It's, a, it's a miracle. I've it never been able incredible. to see you live, and uh, I, and I'm bummed because I live in Denver. I'm originally oh, from right. Salt Lake City, and um, not ever. No one comes through Salt Lake City very often. And Denver, I had a gig there once. I had a gig. Did you? Ooh, tell us a story. Everyone's got the, funny Salt Lake City. We were in, we were in Denver, and we had a gig in Salt Lake City, and they pulled it. 
They must have found out I was political. So we had five days to kill before we had to get to Los Angeles. So uh-huh. what did we do? So we decided to go to Santa Fe. Oh, sure. New Mexico, uh-huh. yeah. Uh-huh. So we kind of drove south out of, out of Denver, out of Colorado, uh-huh. and down to down to New Mexico. And we ended up going to, to Taos, the kind of uh, Native uh-huh. American village. Very uh, amazing place, really amazing place. And um, we were there really late, and uh, we were in the car park, and a, a Native American guy approached us and said, because we had a, a van, you know, we had like an Econoline van. He said, you couldn't do us a favour, could you? Said, what's up? He said, well, the shaman here, pointing at this little old guy, the shaman uh-huh. here, he's got to be at a, uh, uh, there's a ritual in the field. Uh-huh. You couldn't drop him off, could you, on your way out? So we're like, yeah, sure. He's a lovely little guy, smiling guy. Sure. I don't know, you know, sure. he never spoke. So I don't know if he spoke English or not. He probably did. He just didn't, <laughs> he just was shy. So we yeah. put him in the van. He sat in the van. He had his, all his gear on. He sat in the van and he, he pointed where it was, you know, when we're uh-huh. there. And there's all these people in the field. And, um, we we kind of arrive, but the shaman can't get the a kind of door to open. And the people in the field, I think they think we're rubbernecking their right. ritual, which they've asked yeah. you, you know, in the in the village, they ask you not to ask about their religion, which is respectful. Yeah. So we're like, you know, so now they're coming over to tell us to clear up. And as they kind of come over, suddenly he, he pops the door, and here he is, and they're all happy, and they're like, <laughs> oh, you know, thank you. They take him up, and he's, thank you very much. Anyway, he leaves. And then for the next three days, it's like we're all stoned out of our gourds. We are totally tripping the whole really? time. We had a we had a conversation in the van, and we hadn't taken anything, I would add. Uh-huh. We had yeah. a conversation in the van about the difference between the Ramones and the Clash in terms of the 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 uh, elements that were present at the Big Bang. What? No idea what that was about. Another thing, we we saw the great bear. We saw the great bear uh, constellation rising over some mountains, uh-huh. which had a significant name. And we literally drove off the road into the desert and uh, opened the door, fans of the door, turned up the stereo. Jimi Hendrix was playing. The wind cries Mary, uh-huh. and we kind of, uh, we kind of. Invented a ritual that involved Jack Daniels and the dirt, uh-huh. and making marks in the dirt. <laughs> and that, I mean, it's the most weirdest experience. Were you just and tripping on his essence or something? I don't know what it was. I really Weird. don't know what it was. But normally, when you're on the road, you're kind of pretty road weary, you know. Mm-hmm. But this was like a every. Oh yeah, we <laughs> we're driving late one night. We're kind of driving around. New Mexico, basically. And we come around a corner and there's a sign that says true for consequences. Oh, sure. Which is the name of a town. Yeah. But to us, it's like it's like a, a message from God. <laughs> My driver <laughs> van yeah. comes off completely. There's no one else on the road. No one. And we're looking at this sign like, oh my God. <laughs> Can we go there? Can we <laughs> it was the strangest time I, and, and there's a photograph of us on this incredibly long road where the sun's setting at the end of the road and there's someone shot some video one of the guys had a video camera and our eyes are like it's <laughs> yes, so wide and it's you know so we oh, never did get to salt lake city that's but a we trip did get we did get to some House other mexico alter alternate yeah. shaman changed it all that's crazy. yeah he did that little guy 
just put a vibe. And we were so sad to go to Los Angeles. We were all like, oh, no, we've got to go, yeah. Yeah. you know, where, where there's no darkness. Uh -huh. No darkness there. That's what it was. No darkness. There's no, it's never cold. Nothing. Um, okay, I got one more older song that I wanted to ask you about. And, sure. uh, because, okay, Great Leap Forward. It might have been Camelot for Jack and Jacqueline. But on the Che Guevara Highway, filling up with gasoline. Fidel Castro's brother spies a rich lady who's crying over the luxury's disappointment. So he walks over and he's trying to sympathize with her. But he thinks that he should warn her that the third world is just around the corner. Soviet Union, a scientist is blinded by the resumption of nuclear testing and he is reminded that Dr. Robert Oppenheimer's optimism fell at the first hurdle. To me is, I see it as a bridge between the old original Billy and the newly early 90s Billy, because it starts out as a song that you would have put on one of your early albums. And then it slightly becomes augmented by some drums and some piano, and then it just gets bigger as it goes. And I think it's perfect that it's at the end of the Workers' Playtime album because it's ushering in kind of the next phase of Billy. Are you? Am I way overthinking this song? No, 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 no you're not. It's also me kind of like it's the post. The thing about Workers' Playtime is, it's, one, it's a breakup album. Uh, but politically, it's also a bit of a breakup album as well because it's yeah. the post-Red Wedge album. It's the post-Thatcher winning the 1987 election, mm -hmm. which really kind of shattered a lot of us. Yeah. Where Where's my head at now? So that's why I'm saying, look, you know, I'm not got all the answers. You know, I'm not, you know, I'm offering, you know, offering my usual excuses, but I'm still waiting for the change to come. I'm not giving up. I'm just looking for other ways. I recognize where, you know, there's got to be, I give it my best shot, but there's got to be another way to do this. And I'm going to try and carry on doing this, mm -hmm. but not in the ideological way that I did on Talking with a Taxman about poetry. That was of that moment. That was the post minor strike album. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now we're in a post red wedge situation. And yeah, I'm sort of saying this is, you know, I'm going to have to, because the thing is, I, I think. I, I, people talk about difficult second albums. I think the third album is the difficult one, as it says oh, on the front really? of Tax Man, the difficult third album. Yeah, because I think, you know, you got your first album, your first flush, mm -hmm. and if you're any good, you've probably got half a dozen songs that you didn't put on the first album True. you can bang out, which is certainly yeah. my experience. But by the time you get to the third album, if you're any good and you, you've been successful, your life has changed so completely, mm -hmm. you've really got to find a new way of, articulating and also those people who are into you you've got to show them that you can move on into the next thing you know so london calling is a third album Good point. uh you know born in the uh, um it darkness um, on the edge of town or is it born to run no 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 it's uh it's the big one with the cover with uh with um the sax player on the cover well i can't remember yeah, what it's born called to run that's Thank he's you. leaning on the run. clearance yeah yeah yeah, yeah. And the run is the third album yeah. so you know it's this this situation where you 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 know break out of of what you're yeah. doing and and so, for me, having done that, 
with Taxman, I now had to, you know, show the other side of myself, the more, um, you know, soulful side, which a lot, of, a lot of the songs on Taxman are more soulful. But the politics had to be there as well. But it had to be much more confessional mm. rather than, rather than, you know, mm. pointing the way forward. It had to be like, I've been up there, mm-hmm. you know, and it's not, you know, it's it's been a bit of a, a challenge up there, but I'm still going to, you know, remain committed to this. That's yeah. that's what I was trying to put over in Great Leap and doing it by bringing everybody in, you know. That's what I thought. Okay. It sounds just like that. We got to talk about the Mermaid Avenue albums because I think that's probably where a lot of Americans especially know you or got to know you. I mean, those, I'm curious how you feel. I mean, how you feel is probably the wrong question, but. Are you comfortable with the fact that those might be the most popular things that yeah. you ever do in the States? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. If you look on Billy Bragg's Spotify, California Stars and Wild Oh, yeah. Young. I got yeah, it right here in yeah. front of me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's the same with Wilco. California Stars is in their top three. You know, That's it's kind of one of those things that we did something that we may not have realized it at the time, but the sum of the parts was greater than the, yeah. the, the, whole, uh, the whole thing. So I'm very, very comfortable with that okay. because it, it came at a – a time when I was, you know, sort of moving out, you know, off the back of that cycle could have, you know, just got lost, lost in action somewhere. And yeah. as you say, it completely opened me to a new audience, not just in America, but around the world. You know, first of all, it brought me in with Wilco's audience, which was great, but it also kind of brought me in with all those old people who were into Woody, you know, Pete's mm-hmm. audience, Pete Seeger's audience. Exactly. And yeah. And, you know, allowed people to come and get into what we were doing without having to have all the baggage of the Billy Bragness of it. Mm-hmm. And I'm thankful for that. You know, I'm really thankful that Nora gave us the opportunity to work with her father's material. I'm yeah. really thankful to Wilco that they came on board in such a, a, a generous way and yeah. gave a lot to it, you know, both um, in terms of the actual time when we spent together recording, when we recorded 55 songs, Wow! you know, yeah. when we were only supposed to record 15. So you can imagine how fired up we were by it yeah yeah both myself and jeff and jay bennett uh who made a huge contribution it's really kind of jay bennett's album it should be jay bennett presents billy bragg and wilco really way it's kind of yeah 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 he he's the driving force it was his it was woody's words um our music but jeff uh but uh uh jay's uh direction musicality musicality he was the most amazing cat i've ever met he really wow. was, and, and he kind of got it. You only have to tell it to him once, yeah, and, and do that. And it was a, you know, it was a really great project to work on because Jeff at the time was kind of kept himself when he was in Dublin. He kept himself on sort of American time, mm. uh, so you know he might not mm-hmm. turn up to the studio till the afternoon, which was fine because while while he was while we were waiting for him, I could utilize the band on my songs. Yeah, yeah. So it was kind of like a two hander, you know. It actually was a, was a good way to work. Okay. He would come in, you know. I would, I would have, you know, my, I might get three songs down in the morning, afternoon. He'd come in in the afternoon, uh, in the evening, afternoon, evening, with some new ideas, yeah. and we, ch- you know, we throw ideas between each other, ourselves. It worked really, really well in that sense. So this is interesting because I, there, I mean, I've listened to those albums for years, and because you guys trade off vocals, I'm always, I, I got to be honest, I'm wondering sometimes, like, is Wilco really playing on the Billy Bragg songs? Oh, 100%, is it? Yeah. I, I, there's times I've wondered if you're 100%. like in two separate wor- rooms. No, 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 no. Merging songs. No, you really were no, there no. together. There are some. There are some songs that um, I'm not on. The Wilco yeah. recorded in Chicago for the second album because what oh, happened okay. was, yeah, when we come to do Volume Two, 
yeah. because I'd been on the project for a year before them, before I convinced uh-huh. them to come and work with me. I had much, much more songs. You know, I probably had a, a ratio of three to one okay. initially. Initially, yeah. yeah. And as a result, you know, if they if they didn't want to do the second album, we had the songs anyway. Yeah. But they were so into it that they said, actually, you know, we've got some new songs we'd like to record. Is that okay? And I said, sure. And I said, well, if you want to come to Chicago, I'm like, I don't need to. Be, I don't. Think I need to be in Chicago. Yeah. I mean, I recorded some songs, some of my solo songs. They weren't there. They'd gone home. I had another week recording. You know uh ingrid bergman and stuff like that yeah. it wasn't that it wasn't that but but all the all the music on there that you hear on there is is me playing with wilco you play on california stars yep i'm on cali okay. stars yeah Yeah, I'm on all of them apart from on the first album. I'm not on uh, one by one okay. because they they recorded that after I left. On the day I left, they recorded one by one, and when we um, it was brilliant that they did because when they sent me the DAT from Chicago, uh-huh. of what we'd done one by one was the last track, and it really surprised me. It caught me completely by uh, by surprise, and it was just brilliant. It was so great, and I thought to myself. This is how people are going to feel when they hear this record. This is going to, it's going to fucking work. This yeah. is really going to work because it's like it came out of the speakers and I was like, oh wow, that kind of Nashville skyline sound. Yes, and I was like, wow, yes, wow, this is going to work. You know, because if you're in the room and you're watching it being built, you never get that moment of discovery. You sure. get that you're, you know, you're covered in dust at the end of it and yeah, and it's paint on you, but you've got it. But when when it comes to your hole like that. And yeah, I still have that experience when I hear the track on the album. The album's playing. We get to to one by one. I'm like, oh, because it's fading. That's this lovely fading. Oh, yes. I'm like, oh, here we go. This is that yes. moment. Because you that. don't get moments from your own album. You get moments from other people's albums. That's true. Good point. Good point. But I get I get a moment from one by one on the. Did on the you record. bring in Natalie? Yeah, yeah, I okay. did. She was a I'm friend of mine. Natalie, and I, and I think um, we need. You know, I needed someone to sing um, "Birds and Ships." Where might your lonesome love 
and uh, um, I was born. And I got in touch with her and she was like, you're making an album and you don't have to write any lyrics? I'm like, yep. <laughs> Is that so great? So, yeah, so I went to uh, – we have a, a, a dear mutual friend, Gary Smith, who ran Fort Apache in Boston. Yeah. We, went to, we went to Fort Apache and Gary uh, recorded us live playing those songs. And wow. uh, she sang on um, Way Over Yonder as well, which was yeah. just brilliant. Yeah, that's the best. I lived in a place called Olfuski And I had a little girl in a hollow tree I said, little girl, it's plain to see Ain't nobody that can sing like me Ain't nobody that can sing like me She said, it's hard for me to see how one little boy got so ugly Yes, my little girly, that might be But there ain't nobody that can sing like me Ain't nobody that can sing like me We'll be under in the minor key We'll be under in the minor key there ain't nobody that can sing like me We walk down by the Buckeye Creek um, That makes, I've always assumed because <laughs> I have a weird story about how I discovered Billy Bragg. So when I'm a teenager, um, I'm, I'm really into Rolling Stone magazine. And I remember in 1987, they put out their uh, 20th, 20 year anniversary, a hundred greatest albums of all time. Yeah. And there's an ad in the magazine that has you, uh, the back to basics album has the call. It has 10,000 maniacs and it has X and it says, these might be the next on the next yeah. hundred greatest albums yeah. of all time. Electra, Electra records. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So, and I remember at the time, I, I'm getting goosebumps. That magazine has changed my life because I'm a 14 year old kid. And that's where I learn about television and Patty Smith. And I'm a big Bowie fan, but yeah, I'm not just a, you're not just a 14 year old kid. You're a 14 year old kid in Salt Lake City. That's it. Exactly. That's the real thing there. That's exactly. the real thing, isn't it? And you're suddenly I don't know, getting this. Yes. Yeah. I don't know anyone else who likes music the way I nope. do and is interested in raw power by Iggy Pop. I can't believe what yeah. is this? It's so provocative. Yeah. And so just seeing your names lumped in with these other things, I've had it in my, it, it planted a seed in my brain that Billy Bragg is really important. Oh, and, uh, that cool. I, and so that's when I became aware of Billy Bragg. And I had a member of the call on here a few years ago and he was saying, oh, that's because we all went on like a tour together. You're all on the Electra label at yep. the time and stuff like that. Yep. So anyway, that's, I assume that might be the connection there was the label because um, okay. So yeah, one well, other question. And I know her as well. I mean, she was kind of like you know, you, you turn. I tend to meet other people in my industry in benefit gigs. Oh, and sure. Natalie, you know, Natalie did benefit gigs. REM did benefit gigs. Yep. You know, Wilco as well. You know, they did they did their stuff. And that's and that's how we all met for Red Wedge. You know, we'd all do gigs for the miners for Nicaragua yep. Solidarity for Artists Against Apartheid. That's if you do those kind of things, you tend to meet the same artists on different causes, but same artists. So that's makes how I sense. know most of those people. Yeah, makes sense. Um, so when it comes to, I got to be honest, Billy. It, no offense to you and Wilco, who I love very much. 
I, why didn't Nora Guthrie go to Jackson Brown and Bob Dylan? Why did they go to, why did she go to you guys? Cause you're, you're not the artist that you are today. You're still sort of young in, you know, comparatively. She did go to the obvious. Did she? <laughs> she did. They said no. <laughs> I think, you know, the sense of, the sense I got from her was they were too in awe of Woody. Uh, That's why she needed a Brit to, to go in there. Someone who didn't grow up with him. Yeah. You know, I came to Woody through Bob Dylan, like a lot of people of my generation. Sure. But I didn't really know. I knew he was important, and I knew his material. But I didn't, you know, when when Nora invited me in to to do the work, I was absolutely amazed at the lyrics. And then I had to buy his uh, original biography by Joe Klein mm -hmm. and get up to speed on him as well. You know, mm -hmm. but I think you know what what I was able to do was I was able to see Woody Guthrie against the backdrop of American popular culture rather than being the little guy, mm -hmm. as we call him, you know, who inspired Bob Dylan, who was really close to, you know. And so what that meant was that I wasn't afraid to do what Nora wanted me to do, which was to record songs that changed people's perceptions about her father. It's very significant that the album opens with Walt Whitman's niece. song about Woody Guthrie, you know, chasing women with two drunk sailors. Because that's not the Woody Guthrie that people were familiar with. Sure. But Nora was deeply concerned that her father was becoming a two-dimensional figure, hmm. beloved by, but sort of kidnapped by academics. Yeah. And she yeah. needed someone to come along and, and challenge that. And I think maybe the first person to do it maybe couldn't be an American. It may, it may have been. It they may have, have been too reverential. They needed an outsider. Yeah, you didn't need that. You didn't. Yeah, you don't need that. The material, the material is so strong. You can play it any which way. You yeah. know, I've played way over yonder like a rockabilly song. Mm -hmm. I've played it like a you know a, a full on uh, gallop. The material is just so strong, and you mustn't be afraid of of um, getting the grips of it. That's yeah. what Nora wanted. You know, she wanted us to, you know. He can't be an icon. He was an iconoclast. Yeah. He needed to be knocked off his pedestal and brought back down to the real earthy man that he was. That's what she wanted. Yeah. And finding someone to do that was proving hard, I think. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when you think about it, 
It's not like it was the last few fragments that a guy wrote. He's three thousand songs in there. Yeah, true. You know, true. it's, it's true. It was, you know, everybody. You know, we could have all made a a, a decent Woody Guthrie album. Yeah, yeah. And and so you know, I'm just glad that there's still people. I just noticed the Dropkick Murphys have just done one, which is just brilliant. Oh, really? I really look forward to hearing that. Oh, yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Nora carries on. Nora carries on inviting people, and I think people, Good. you know, the 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 reception of Mermaid Avenue gave people the you know the the courage to go and do their own take on it. You know, yeah. encouraged by. Nora. I mean, Nora's incredibly generous with the material, Good. really, really generous with the material by seeking people out and sending them lyrics. And yeah. you know, it's not a project really. I mean, you know, yeah. it should have been Nora Guffrey and Jay Bennett. True, interesting. It really should have been. <laughs> So Nora, let me ask. Yeah, Nora was was absolutely crucial. She would have to be. Um, yeah. So if this is too touchy a subject, I'll you know we can cut it out or whatever. But I mean, seeing what happened to Jay, and then passing away, is that how do you feel about that? Very sad. I bet Very sad. because I see him as sort of like the secret hidden ingredient that made Wilco at that stage really special, and the yeah. fact that they couldn't make it work is really sad to me. It is sad, and what um, obviously you know what happened to Jay as well. His addiction, um, his his decline, his early demise, all of it is really, really sad because he was such a lovely guy. You know, I really got on with him, and you could really throw anything at him; he would pick it up and play it. And you know, to uh, I didn't really see him after after the record after we made the record uh, in the, the years that followed. So I never had a real chance to to try to connect with him, uh-huh. but uh, yeah, I think he's greatly missed by a lot of people. Yeah. I think greatly, yeah. greatly missed. And as yeah. I say, Mermaid Avenue wouldn't be after record without Jay's input. Jay's what made it fascinating. Spark. Jay's what made it weird. Jay's what yeah. made it incredibly dynamic. You know, because I had a, you know Nora's original idea was to. Um, get different artists to sing different songs. You know, I write the music for them. And then, you know, she had a, she had a list of mostly folk folkies mm-hmm. from her generation. And I was like, Nora, look, if, if, if what you want is Woody to come to the fore in here, mm-hmm. then getting loads of people to sing, they're going to kind of, they're kind of getting away. Mm-hmm. Why don't you, you know, why don't you let me make the record with a band that we all play together and we, you know, it's a single band, and we just play the songs, and then they'll, they'll, Woody will come out in that way much stronger yeah. than if you have a, a, you know, he's in a crowd. Yeah. And and you know, Nora to give her due, recognise that might be a good idea, and she liked Wilco, and Wilco, you know, Wilco came and uh, Jeff and Jay came to the archive, chose some songs. Um, but the 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 crucial aspect of that was the cohesiveness of the band mm-hmm. and their ability to. To play, I mean, that's what I really liked. The album before um, Mermaid Avenue that they had made was being there, and there's so that's many great still my guys. Favorite Wilco album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What a great record that is. Yeah, and and so and also I have to say this: they were also, you know, almost beginning Summer Teeth. Yeah, you know, Jeff was playing songs from Summer Teeth in the studio, humming to himself while we were recording the record. I mean, it's an incredible really? feat of. Focus to go from demoing Summer Teeth to do Mermaid Avenue and then record Summer Teeth. I mean, they it still amazes me that they were able to do that. But yeah. you know, that's that's the kind of musicians they were, and I I have huge respect for all of them. Would you have ever guessed that they'd go on to be one of the biggest American bands in the world at this time? Yeah, I, I, you know, I could see that. Uh, you know, yeah. I thought they, I I did feel that they would. 
undoubtedly transcend the alt country thing that, uh -huh. they, that they came out of. Yeah, and um, you know, I'm I'm remain astounded by their yeah. by their output. You know, more power yeah. to them. I occasionally cross paths with them at festivals here and there, and they always blow me away. That's great. Um, okay, we're up on time. I could do this for hours. I tell yeah. me a, because I have Johnny Marr on the brain, having just seen him last night. Tell me a Johnny Marr story. Are you two still in touch? Are you buddies? Yeah, well, I, don't, I we you know whenever I see him, I, again he's someone I bump into at festivals. Yeah, um, because he, um, you know, he for a time he was living in America, wasn't he? He was out in Portland. Uh huh. But whenever I see him, it's like you know I yeah. I just saw him last week. He's he's the nicest guy in rock and roll, Johnny. Yeah, you know, that's really, what I've heard. Yeah, I was he really uh, is the, a good guy. the friends that we went to the concert with last night didn't realize that he was the guitarist for the Smiths. And I was, and uh, they're just big Killers fans, and I, I yeah, they yeah. were like, "So what's what's the deal then? Why don't Morrissey and Mar get along? Why aren't they getting back together?" And it's like, "Oh man, there's so yeah. much there." You've been yeah. critical of Morrissey too. It's a shame, you know. It is. It's. A, I think it's a real shame because I, I remain a huge fan of the Smiths, their lyrics, the the, yeah. the melodies, everything. But it seems to me that that Morrissey is just pissed on that legacy. You know, he was he was the great champion of outsiders and the marginalised. He was, and for him to turn in, into what he's turned into is just. It seems to me to be a betrayal of what he sang about in those days. And I feel very much for Johnny because you know, it's his legacy as well. And yeah. and and I'm really glad he plays the Smith songs and takes, uh, you know, ownership of them. You know, yeah. how soon he's now, particularly because that is a you know. That's just yeah. a song Morrissey sings. That's the Johnny Marr song through and that's through. 100%, you know, that's it. Um, where are you, by the way? I'm in Dorset in Dorset. West, okay. West England, Southwest England, about two miles from the coast near a town called Weymouth. Okay. We always and, say uh, where the person's calling in from. And I yeah, the, the sun's just gone down. The the rooks and the uh, jack uh, uh, jackdaws that live in the the little wood over the road. I've just seen them come home. They're oh, wow. uh, making their their the usual sounds. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I've had a, I've, I'm, I've got, it's my 40th anniversary next year. First album comes out. Oh, that's true. Yeah. 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 And, and I've, um, I've been going through the archives, looking at, looking at stuff, uh, uh -huh. the last few weeks. So lots of, um, two inch master tapes, you know, <laughs> sort of, why yeah. a ton, man. My arms yeah. are like, ah, getting them down, <laughs> looking, you know, looking in the boxes and, oh, yeah. They they literally, you know, the weight of them, a box of five of them, humping uh -huh. them around, uh -huh. uh, trying to find stuff. And I was explaining to uh, a friend of mine who I was at, came over today. I was putting some in the car. I was saying, "No, this, you know, this is how we recorded." And you know, and not only that, they, they, this is the two inch, and then this master is cut down on for listening onto a half inch, and then that might be mastered onto a ADAT, and then that might, and now. And I held up another, you know, little thing. Uh -huh. I said the entire last album is on this right. a hard drive. Everything, right. all right. the mixes, everything, all the listening it's right ones, all, it's all on there. Crazy. So it's like you know, yeah. yeah. I mean, I've got the I've got the fifteen master tapes of Mermaid um, Avenue. I was looking at. Really? Like, so are yeah. you putting together like a box set or, or reissues of the early albums, or what are you doing? Yeah, somewhere between the two. Yeah, somewhere okay. between the two. Yeah, and it's kind of you know just sort of having a, a step back and a rethink, and yeah. you know bringing it together, try and sort of celebrate 
I mean, it's a long time, 40 years. It's yes. a different world from yes. when I first uh, uh, started out. But at the same time, I think I think as you, the longer you are in this business, the balance between uh, creation and curation uh, kind of, sure. you know, changes yeah. like that. So long as you don't give up on curation, so long as you, creation, so long yeah. as you don't stop, you know, making that, making new albums and just rely on curation. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, a balance between the two, because it's not, you know, there's no point in me putting an album out every year, every two, three years, right. you know. But right. there are other other projects people might be interested totally. in, stuff that I've done, other things. So it's kind of looking at looking at ways of, uh, you know, addressing that and carrying on, you know, making it interesting for people and making a living for me. Sure. That's kind of the responsibility of a legacy artist now is to put out the occasional new music, but repackage or repurpose or recontextualize their history so that newbies will enjoy it. Yeah, legacy fans will enjoy it. Give them something yeah. new to kind of chew on. Yeah. Um, well, Billy, I if you can't tell, I love you a lot, and thank you for being you. Um, I wish there oh, were more Billy. Someone Brands has to do it, John. Someone has to do it, mate. It might as <laughs> well grateful. be me. I'm grateful you're an inspiration <laughs> to all of us. Well, you're very kind, mate. You're very kind. I'm just trying to throw out some ideas, and I've been very fortunate throughout the last twenty. Eight years, uh, sorry, 38 years since I first came to America in 1984 that there's been people in the U.S. who are interested in what I'm doing. It, it never ceases to amaze me that yeah. when I make a record, there's still people out there who are interested in what I've got to say. So I feel very fortunate, very happy to come and talk to you. I'm sorry I never made it to Salt Lake City. I did play there once with Echo and the Bunnymen on the very first tour. You did? I they're, did, They're yeah. here this weekend. Wow. I'm trying to go see them this weekend. Yeah, they. I was. I we played Denver. Uh, on our and then we played Salt Lake City on our way to San Francisco. Uh huh. And um, I you know I was kind of pretty hardcore in those days, and I wasn't an outsider, and I was solo, and I was like, you know, <laughs> I was making the audiences have it, whether they yeah. wanted it or not. Yeah. And I said some, you know, they someone must have been giving me some shit about something. I don't know because I said, look, mate, they don't pay me even to do this, <laughs> but I'm not going away. Okay, they don't pay me, and someone threw a coin at me. And I saw it. I saw it spinning out the light, and I caught it. I managed to caught it, catch it. Really? Yeah. Ooh. And I said, "Well, now I am getting paid." And then <laughs> people, people then started throwing coins on the stage, not at me, but right. on the stage, throwing coins on the stage, right? And <laughs> bang! Then it wasn't nasty. It was like uh -huh. affirmative. Sure. It was like you yeah. know, sporting what I said. Yeah, it's like and busking. I'm, you know, I'm like, this is cool. This is cool. This is interesting. Uh -huh. So I finished my set. You know, I was, I was. I only had 30 minutes. Anyway, I'm in the dressing room, and one of the, the bunny men's roadies comes in with a pint pot full of small change. He said, oh, this, I think, is yours, Mr. Bragg. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay, great. And then about 12 hours later on the bus, we stopped at a truck stop in Reno. Uh-huh. And in Reno, they have things to do with small change. They do. You can use it. <laughs> so all that money from Salt Lake City went into the, went into the slot machines in a truck stop in Reno. But that's kind of the way the world that is. That is hilarious. It? That's why that's, my, that's my memory of Salt Lake City. I love it. I love it. Thank you, Billy. You're the best, man. All right, there you have it, Billy Bragg. Just one of mankind's greatest. I love that guy, and I love the way he sees the world. I love what he fights for. I love his his take on things. I love the way that he sees people who whose minds and hearts he still needs to help change. I, I admire all of that so, so much. 
I want to close it out with another song off of the Million Things album. This is the last song. It's one of my favorites. Ten mysterious photos that couldn't be explained. I hope I got that right. A lot of the word, a lot of the titles on this album are kind of verbose, and you could tell Billy and I were even struggling to remember every word exactly right. But anyway, it's a great, great album. Go check it out. And again, if you go see him in concert, please tell me because I am so envious. I would love to see Billy live. And uh, I hope that you were as inspired by this conversation as I was. I learned a lot. He's a wonderful man. Anyway, now next week uh, is most likely a twofer. Two bands who will be tied together at the hip for eternity because of a song. One British, one uh, American, classic rock, different eras, but uh, they will be to get bound together for a couple of songs, but one in particular, and we get to hear from members of both those bands. That's what's coming up next week. Huge thanks, as always, to Jan the Man Makevich, my right-hand man. Thank you, buddy, for everything. Uh, folks, you can like our Facebook page. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. We're giving you a break this week. No bonus material. But I hope everyone goes back and listens to the deep dive with Dennis Dyken of the Smithereens to talk about their Green Thoughts album from 1988, one of the best albums ever, and have picked up, or will try and pick up, the Lost album that they just released of songs they recorded back in the 90s that were never put out. Huge, huge stuff from one of America's greatest bands. All right? Thanks, folks. We love you.